fame hasn't been the same. The purity was sacrificed as we divided on the wrong terms or the goods of the tests of the games. Fiume has sure changed a lot. So you can have this last museum, burning galleries ahead, dying micronations, selective feedback loops. Are you still in the fight? We created a psychic empire for the thrill of the ride. Yet ever since they shut down shop, the Yume hasn't been the same. So I call to you this last location. See if we can try another shot. Is this resurrection on the menu? Execute more violently in passion. A nation of artists declaring by sword. Our great front is here to celebrate. Did you wish to begin a new rising? Get rid of the other ones swiftly. I see invisible selections, the most objective details inferred. The vanguards rise and fall as we marginalize in glory. There's a way to do this right. Yet ever since they stopped the build, the Yume hasn't been the same. A ritual for the secret village. Sacrifice is so postmodern now. When there is meaning and divide, a million governments dictating, burning brightly and beyond, crossed over to the band dimension, the future finally reassigned. It was declared we had done well. Pornographic demigods at the reading. Naked flames bearing it all. I'm restrained and unwavering. The most pristine time. Yet ever since they intervened, Fayume hasn't been the same. Mm-hmm. So um, this was uh, Bemoaning to Fiume by my present guest, uh, who's very kindly here gathered with me, Rachel Haywire, published on the 4th of January, 2024. Um, a date which is, you know, very resonant for me, as that was the uh, the fourth and I should hope final time that uh, that my long-term girlfriend broke up with me, But uh, and which I suppose constitutes a Fiume of my own. But also, you know, I think that's resonant with the... Uh, with the glow of the new year still still upon us, you chose to publish publish this poem. Um, another reason I wanted to highlight it is because um, I think it actually speaks. It, it really cuts right to the essence of the beautiful toilet and what I you know what I intended to do with the aesthetic and like the uh, uh, thematic vision of the podcast. It, in that you know the, my gimmick is more or less to try to establish some continuity between the interwar period and um the present day and you know try to use that as like a touchstone to you know explore um explore the milieu in which i find myself and uh the challenges of the day and the challenges of fostering like genuine transgressive creativity in the current epoch um so with all that said and uh before i get on my high horse i would ask um what was it about Fiume that caught your attention in particular? And why did you find it uh, resonant to um, 
this kind of uh, allegorical um, interpretation? Well, I see it in two ways. There's the temporal space, which is the ever-evolving consciousness of BMA. And then there's BMA itself, which was a micronation that was created during the Italian futurist era, Wait, I'm sorry, your uh, audio cut. I'm sorry, your audio cut out. Hello. Wait, do you hear me? Your audio cut out for a minute. Can you? Uh, oh. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting Can you a hear me? Yeah, yeah. I'm getting a notification saying my internet connection is unstable, which I guess you know serves me for moving to right. the second world to save money. But <laughs> but yeah, sorry. Could you uh, backtrack just a little okay. bit? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I see family in two ways. There's the temporal space, which is the ever-evolving consciousness of it. And then there is the actual family, which was a micronation that was formed in the early Italian futurist era by D'Annunzio, the poet and the artist, who had the idea of creating a nation as a work of art. And the nation was full of poets and philosophers and artists who had all sorts of obscure ideologies on everything across the board, all sorts of weird fringe ideas. And they all, they all kind of came together and, you know, formed their own micronation, utopia. Um, now people would call it a network state. So the Yume's D'Annunzio's art project that was also a nation but I also, I view it as a temporal space, mm-hmm. which was what I was getting at in my poem. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the, I think that's pretty well understood. I think, uh, um, you know, Fiume has a special place in the hearts of the, uh, the kind of uh, reactionary avant-gardist, you know, for good reason, or, or like the, you know, um, the, the counter-revolutionary libertines in particular. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, for a lot of people, it kind of, it is representative of the displacement of this very like transgressive avant-garde current that kind of went into fascism, like in its very early years, being uh, supplanted by by this appeal to um, like Wagnerian sentimentality, perhaps like a more middle brow iteration of um, of fascism proper. I think that's like a major grievance of. Uh, one of my uh one of my previous guests uh who just uh goes by giovanni um who uh used to run a telegram channel called futurism forever now i think it's called uh beautiful monsters or something um but uh um you know he had he expressed this grievance uh on a podcast episode a couple giovanni. years ago oh you know him i i guess that that's sans yeah <laughs> yeah that checks yeah, out <laughs> yeah actually of course it is yeah that was uh th- th- i had him on about what was that Oh, it was over two years ago now. Um, and, uh, yeah. you know, I, I think that this is something that was very animating for him. Um, the the L- concept- Literally, like, animist. Yeah, yeah, just the, you know, his kind of grievance about how this, like, very, like, uh, uh, avant-garde current of what was the stew that became Italian fascism was kind of supplanted and, um, you know, and how it, kind of got whittled down and like uh um 
drained of its transgressive energy. Um, I'm not really, uh, you know, strongly opinionated on the matter, but I know that, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of thoughtful people have uh, certain feelings about that and the way that things went and how, you know, the, the futurists were marginalized, how Denunzio himself was marginalized uh, um, after the institution of the fascist state. And um, yeah, so what do you think yeah. the particular, I'm... oh, pardon, no, uh, would you please uh, continue with what you were going to say? This happens a lot in history. You have the original creatives and the founders and the transgressive artists and they come up with these ideas that push the boundaries of thought and art and respectable society. We lay the groundwork for our fumes, and then they get corrupted by the state machinery and turn into managerial fascism, as okay. opposed to a more esoteric, expressive form of creativity. Um, I, I don't even believe it was unique to the Italian period. I think that it happened in France and it happened in Germany. It happened in America. There's a cycle here mm -hmm. where the transgressive artists get replaced by the apparatus of the state. And it's unfortunate. Um, I, I've also learned to kind of just like embrace the vanguardism and sort of view the marginalization with a type of elitist kind of rarity mm -hmm. that makes me just feel fortunate to have been on the ground floor during my generation. And so I like to think of all the people before me and all the people that are going to come after me that mm. are occupying this temporal space and, you know, kind of seeing us all like chained through history. Hmm. I mean, I think maybe, and maybe it's because I have like a more uh, like traditionalist or um, like, I mean, I mean, like lowercase t traditionalist, not like, you know, the traditionalism proper, like in the 20th century sense, um, or like a more uh, kind of uh, conservative temperament or whatever that I, I would think that, you know, however appealing and like exciting um, the FUMA free state may seem like, you know, the, it ultimately is accountable for its own failure and its own lack of solvency and that like you know creating uh beautiful things that don't last that are i mean of course nothing lasts in you know in our entropic world but like creating a beautiful kind of uh a spasm of creative creative energy that just burns out spectacularly um <clears throat> is actually like less meaningful than creating something like solid and like uh, um, intergenerational and solvent that can, you know, that can weather, that, that is, that can weather a lot of um, challenges and that has an appeal, which isn't necessarily based on like it's transgressive um, rebellion against established norms, but actually is based on the absolute values that it's oriented towards. Um, and I, you know, I think we can talk about that a little bit more later, but I don't know. I agree with you. And essentially, I also see the way that the transgressive renegade to mm -hmm. build these new societies through the ashes of the old ones often have their work defiled mm -hmm. and inverted when the 
new iteration comes out and building something long lasting and generational is the goal. But I don't think that's going to stop this degenerate exploitation of the original founders. That's just something that happens because people are animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that actually does shine through a lot of your work that uh, I've, from what I've read is like an appreciation of the entire process uh, and as like an all like all of its parts um, are like necessary um, to the whole that like, you know, it, rather that there is just this kind of like natural cyclical nature to it. And, um, you know, the the. Um, that that is kind of a life cycle of um of a creative movement in effect um that's how you movement i see this spanglerian nature of subcultural movements i've mm -hmm. always said that subculture was spanglerian mm -hmm. and it happens in any scene it's not just exclusive to like the esoteric you know third positionist or you know insert ideology here it's mm -hmm. happened in the punk scene, the goth scene, the industrial scene, the tech industry. Mm -hmm. It's just the nature of subculture. Mm -hmm. Subcultures go through these cycles. It makes sense. That's just like humanity at work. Mm -hmm. um, before we get too deep into your ideas, I suppose I should, uh, I should you know, do you the courtesy of introducing you to the audience. Um, my guest tonight is Rachel Haywire, um, a, uh, a writer, woman of controversy, uh, industrial musician, and uh, former presidential candidate. Um, is there anything else I'm leaving out of your biography that I, you feel needs mention? I forgot that we were doing a podcast. I just felt like I was talking to you hanging out. Um, hi everybody. <laughs> I oh yeah, sorry. I don't mean I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. No, I mean you know. I, I just mean. forgot we were on air just because <laughs> I was talking to you like we normally talk. Like this mm -hmm. is just a typical conversation that we that's have. That's um, that's that's the idea. So, that's what I hope for. That's what I aspire towards. Yeah, but but hi hi audience. I'm Rachel Haywire. I'm love me or hate me. It's still an obsession. Love me or hate me. That is the question. If you don't love me, fuck you. I, I don't know. I forget the Lady Sovereign song. Um. But yeah, no, you, you got it. I'm a musician. I'm a writer. I ran for president of the Transhumanist Party. I also throw events and I have an AI fashion line. I'm looking to bring transgressive fashion to the runway through technology. Very cool. Well, uh, thank you so much for being here, by the way. Um, yeah. I think uh, um, there was one passage. Uh, you're also the author of the the book, uh, uh, The New Art Right, uh, published in 2018, which uh, I, I think we can use as a springboard to kind of discuss uh, a lot of the uh, um, a lot of the points that I you know that I wanted to get at in the context of this interview, and also um, you know just you know things that stood out to me. But there was a passage in particular that stood out to me um, towards the end. Um, where you say, uh, growing up in the occult scene, it seemed like everyone was some type of social activist. I was talking to people who outright admitted that they believed in nothing while simultaneously bragging about the social causes they supported. I should have seen the inherent contradiction right then and there. Belief is a tool that can be used to change reality. 
there is no right and wrong. Everything is flexible, followed by, it's really important that we stop oppression against trans people. The way that the trans community is treated is wrong. <laughs> we cannot stand for it. Um, and you know, I think this is very easy to pick up on now, but you, you, know, you talk about having this epiphany at a very young age. Um, and it's the incongruity between the stated nihilism of these people or like the stated like moral relativism of them perhaps um, with the self-evident fact that these people, the, uh, the politically correct ideologues, whatever you might want to call them, you know, yeah, the, the term woke gets thrown around, although I think it's, pardon, I think it's become kind of cringe, but uh, um you know, whatever, whatever you want to call these people, they're very clearly like moralistic in their worldview. Um, I mean, I, and I tend to believe perhaps more than you do that their moralisms are sincere, that yes, it is about signaling status. It is about signaling, uh, um, um, social conformity and whatnot, but also that there is a degree to which they actually buy the bullshit and it is like very sincerely felt and it may even be something that they're willing to sacrifice for um in the case for example of like yimbies i think would be one example right uh, of like people who actually would sacrifice in a meaningful way their quality of life or the quality of life of their children in order to advance their ideological agenda um but it's very clear that they're willing to use this moral language um when it flatters their kind of political uh conceptions and yet they fundamentally lack the metaphysics to kind of justify it i think you have a much kinder view on them than i do a much what view? i mean the occult kind kinder your view uh, of them is a lot more charitable than mine mm -hmm. like having grown up in the occult scene you've got people claiming that belief is a tool Nothing is real except for what you create in your mind. Belief is a little toy to play with. So these people that are professing to believe in nothing, well, they're pretending to be social activists because it moves them up in their social group. They don't believe in any of it. So I would argue with you that the moral relativism is actually real. And these are stark nihilists that are just pretending to have beliefs because they think that that's what is going to move them up. And in a lot of the cases, it does move them up. A lot of times it makes them, you know, pretty, pretty clouded. Um, but, but I don't think it's exclusive to the social activist crowd. I think that people do it on the dissident right too. There are also nihilists who believe in nothing, who pretend to have beliefs because they think it'll move them up. Um, and I think that this is weakness. I think that you need to have a set of beliefs. You need to have a set of foundational views in which you mm -hmm. view the world. You need to have a metaphysical core. You can't just go around changing your ideology because you think that it'll get you a little pat on the back. I think that that's an absence of character. And mm -hmm. I did first notice it in the social activist cult scene, um, but now I think it's, it's spread into our entire generation. It's infected our entire cultural programming mm -hmm. i mean i think my interpretation is just that uh religion inevitably re-emerges no matter how much you try to eradicate it that uh um you know however nihilistic you may aspire and profess to be um it's just you're at war with with your nature if it's um 
it's part of the it's part of being human and it's almost unavoidable except for like the actual like outright sociopaths to avoid uh um creating idols and creating like a moral system in one sense or another and to avoid like actual moral belief um I don't know. I mean, I think like Flannery yeah. O'Connor, like kind of like uh, ex explicates that pretty well. I, you know, I think that. So maybe you know, I I don't mean to give the devil is due too much uh, <laughs> when I say that like these uh, um these what do you what do you call them? What's your term of uh, term of art for these uh, politically correct cancel vultures? I mean, I would just call them boring. <laughs> I mean, the obvious term is woe right we used to call them social justice warriors um i i think the best term for them is bores i think we mm -hmm. should just call them bores mm -hmm. right right i i just think uh um yeah when i when i say that i think that there is a sincere like moral belief there or like oh i think it's a sincere religious belief in fact you know and that that is just the principle that it, that it's impossible to eradicate eradicate like morality and religion from the human spirit and so yeah. that's why i think it takes okay, so on a kind of like um i see what you're saying yeah okay, it so takes on like a kind of sincere their religion is wokeness that's their god um I would say that's true for the true believers. Um, Eric Hoffer talks about this in his book, The True Believer. Um, there's always going to be a 99% that is, you know, they've got the true beliefs. Um, well, I, but that I think if you're if you're just yeah, a craven the, opportunist, on, yes. If you're if you're just a craven opportunist. If you're just a craven opportunist, I think it really helps your craven opportunism if you sincerely believe in uh, whatever belief system advances your own personal gain. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, these things have like a, a kind of weird relationship in some ways. But um... no, that, that's true, too. I mean, you've got a lot of people convincing themselves of things they know are false because mm -hmm. it will get them further in life, which, you know, is actually understandable you know it's a pretty mm -hmm. cutthroat society so you know you, you convince yourself of a lie and things mm -hmm. get better for you it's mm -hmm. you know some people are very deliberate about it um, but what i i actually find to be worse is the people who take advantage of the true believers and these social justice causes and mobilize them to attack innocent people and use them to achieve their own agendas that are very sinister I think that is a lot worse. I mean, okay, you've got like these idiot protesters who honestly believe that they're, you know, fighting for a good cause. Um, but it's the occultists who believe in nothing, who pretend to believe in these causes, who use these people mm -hmm. to attack innocents. Mm -hmm. and, and that is the issue, is the moral inversion of their behavior. I mean, I, I say this is a Nietzschean. You know, like I don't mm -hmm. believe in traditional good and evil, but I do believe in having a master morality. I mean, these people, they lack any type of morality at all. They're just like pure slaves who are now acting as masters in this inverted society, controlling these mobs of true believers. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe uh, we're drifting a little bit away. There's one part of this that I wanted to highlight in particular that you kind of toss off like very matter-of-factly, which is... Uh, um, when you say 
uh, growing up in the occult scene, you, you kind of throw that out there as if it's like a, a totally anodyne thing that we can all relate to. Um, but I was just wondering if you could uh, elaborate a little bit on your upbringing and uh, uh, personal background and how that influences you. And um... Well, the occult scene, I'm, I'm old. Um, the occult scene was very popular in the music subcultures that I was involved in. You know, like as an industrial musician, there were always people that were occult leaning on everything from like the Church of Satan to the Lima to the IOT to just like straight up paganism and Gnosticism. It was the norm. When you say um, growing yeah. up in the occult scene, like uh, I interpreted that to mean like that your parents were like an av avowed occultists and uh, um, that oh, no, you had no, always no, been exposed. No, I, you mean I like being like socially acclimated to it and like, uh, yeah. I grew up in a Jewish family that was relatively conservative. I'm talking mm -hmm. about like from 15 onward as mm -hmm. a musician, there were a lot of occultists and by mm -hmm. subcultures who all had these views about how reality was a toy mm -hmm. and belief was fake and we could use belief to achieve our own ends you know this whole like manifesting you know i mean it was very belief is something that we're going to use to get what we want we will use belief to achieve our goals you know, mm -hmm. it's very Lindsayan in nature. Um, and I I grew tired of it. And I was like, no, it's good to have beliefs. We should mm -hmm. have foundations. We should have frameworks. We should have values. Values are good. We need to have values. Um, but apparently that was like conservative to even suggest that because these people were still against having any values at all. Mm -hmm. Um. Can you uh can you talk a little bit more about your like uh, uh early years and your like uh parental like family upbringing and um how you came from that point to these uh these subcultures of that um this kind of uh ca countercultures which you became assimilated in later? Well, I mean, I grew up in a small town in South Florida, mm -hmm. I was labeled as autistic um which you know I, I might be um but i'm not considered autistic for san francisco um you know like everybody's autistic in florida but things for themselves you know you, you can have some weird esoteric philosopher in florida who people will label as mentally ill just because they like share their ideas in public um it's a very conservative background conservative in the negative sense of the word. Um, a lot mm -hmm. of people who grew up, you know, in New York City or LA or San Francisco that are like sick of wokeness, they don't know what it's like to actually grow up in a cell where mm -hmm. expressing yourself is considered, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's not a popular thing to do. You mm -hmm. can't just like run around in the South, you know, and like lurk as, you know, like some weird racist, you know, people are still going to think you're a communist yeah <laughs> just because you're like weird like like being weird is enough to get you shunned by these entire communities you know like no matter what your views are no matter what your artistic statement is people are going to be like like this makes no sense to me i don't understand it they're going to look at you like an alien 
Yeah, that's um, uh, um that's something that. when when I uh when I visit like where I grew up and like my kind of hometown or whatever, I do like to kind of test the limits of how much I can kind of assimilate myself or how much I can blend in or pass the Turing test in like a kind of <laughs> uh like conservative normie um environments if i go to like a dive bar that has like maga paraphernalia around it like are they going to out me as like you know some as like non not really a fellow traveler or i mean um and you know it's always like kind of i i think it's like half and half um you know i think there's like half of the sense of alienation whereas there is like a half of me that actually does feel pretty comfortable in that environment now and now that i've matured enough to kind of appreciate it for what it is um I don't know. Maybe you don't have that experience, but um, no. I mean, I definitely am matured, and I feel more comfortable in it now. But when I was growing up, I definitely did not. You know, um, when I was growing up, I just I wanted to burn it all down. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the way that conformity was enforced. I mm-hmm. thought it was the herd mentality. I grew up reading Nietzsche, and so it was like the herd mentality was everywhere. It was all like Undermensch. You know, I'm like, like, who, who are these people? Mm-hmm. Why are they so Todd-like? Why are they so boring? Um, I found solace in the alternative subcultures because I could be myself. I could express myself creatively. I could get on stage and I could freak out. I could write music and I could perform it to crowds of people who understood me. And I never had that in my own family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, uh, that sense of alienation is relatable to me. Um, you kind of, uh, uh, you characterize in, in your book, the dominance of political correctness as being like a kind of ever expanding safe space, um, which is a word I haven't heard in many sons. Um, that, you know, you know what I mean? That feels like a very, that feels like very much like a relic of like the 2010s, um, internet, like culture wars, um, and I think that once it became... It was actually written in 2015. Um, so my book was re-released in 2018 under the name The New Art Rate. Um, but it was originally released on Art Coast Media in 2015. It was called The New Reaction. Oh, and okay. I thought I had the understanding like that... Safe the, space then. I had the understanding that The New Art Rate was a, um, was a sequel to The New Reaction. But uh, yeah, thank you for clarifying um and it's a re-release with a few new essays in it mm-hmm. so i mean it's the same book but there's just new essays contained mm-hmm. within it um and it was originally published in 2015 when we were still yeah there was still a culture war there was still like gamergate um we were still using terms like safe space and hug box and <laughs> i mean i even remember like terms like neckbeard and all, all that yeah. stuff i mean like way way back when it was a quite a different time i don't know how many people remember it well i mean like progressives just abandoned their vocabulary as soon as um as soon as it's discovered and like sufficiently mocked or whatever um right which is why woke is like such a cringe term now is because you know they did like sincerely describe themselves that way at one point um you know they did sincerely describe themselves as proponents of social justice they did say things like safe spaces um I haven't heard probably it's probably been like 
almost a decade since I heard a progressive in the wild speak about safe spaces in a, any positive way. You know what I mean? Because it's like so self-evidently yeah. kind of awful and um, off-putting that they just, you know, they kind of, they do this thing where they abandon their vocabulary and then try to mock you for believing that they ever even said the thing that they said. <laughs> oh, wow. I I actually haven't dealt with leftists in a while just because I find these kinds of social games just too aggravating to mm -hmm. keep up with. In, I and think I think I in find it to be a waste of time. Um, but I do still hear the term safe space in like corporate settings. Really? Really? <laughs> Once again, LinkedIn lags. Yeah, ten years, yeah LinkedIn it's, it's lags weird. like ten years behind the culture. That that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah, but you you do see it, like even at banks now. Like you see a sign at a bank. This is a safe space against hate. You Jesus. actually see like this is yeah, like now now in the in the current year. Um, <laughs> lack of safe spaces in corporations. J.P. Morgan is a safe space for obese women yeah. of color. Yeah. 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 Um I mean that's that's funny but uh, um I mean in concept when I first heard the term safe space I kind of I was like not immediately hostile to it because I thought the implication is you are carving out like a very limited fenced off space where it is like you know catering to people's sensitivities and the implication is that the world at large does not have to be that. And so in that sense, like it actually seemed like a kind of um, vindication of free speech, right? Or of like uh, open expression in the world at large. And it's like, well, you can create like a little intentional community where you, you know, you don't allow these things, but you understand that the world is, uh, um, th that the world is scary and doesn't cater to, you know, to your, like dumb preferences um obviously that's not what it is in practice it, you know in practice it seems like it's very can't it's like cancerous and it, you know it's just like the, as soon as you grant that privilege to carve out a safe space that you know the boundaries of it are ever expanding and it, it seems as though the ultimate goal is to transform the world into a safe space which is you know, deeply offensive to the male spirit, uh, for one thing, but also just to, you know, anyone who actually has interests and passions. And I don't know. I mean, you're going back to the phenomenon, sanitizing mm -hmm. vitalist energy and mm -hmm. weakening cultural output to feminize it and make it more digestible which is something that is also cyclical and not unique to our era. I think that what happens is that when artistic output gets to be too powerful, there are always a bunch of managerialists who seek to put out the fire, almost like an alchemical act where they mm -hmm. want to get rid of intensity because they're really focused on like this oriental concept of harmony, you know, and harmony is more important to them than truth. Um, art is less important to them than keeping the peace. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, whether they, they call it a safe space or not, a free speech zone, it's essentially the same thing, which is a containment operation. It's a containment of the spirits of violation of the human soul. Yeah. And I've kind of started to think recently that like your art isn't really like fully realized unless it forces non-consenting people to enjoy it against their will. (laughs) Which is why I like, uh, I really celebrate the uh, colorful subway performers who like to do their dance on the New York city subway, you know, like very close, like come within like inches of kicking you in the face while they're like playing like hip hop from their ghetto blasters. Um, while you're in enclosed, you're in an enclosed metal tube with them with literally no exit. Nothing you do could like make them stop. Um, and they have this unabashed love of performing, and their attitude is just they don't care if you don't want to watch it. You're going to anyway, you fucking pussy. And I really find a lot to admire about that. And I think that like um, you know, I, I kind of wish that like European culture had that same sense of self-assurance where you this is my art. I am going to force you to like it because I like it. I'm not asking for your permission. Um. Well, I think that we did. And I think that that's what Nietzsche talks about when he gets into the spirit of music and he talks about this defilement of the spirit being sanitized. You know, he is touching on the same thing which is this disenchantment of art and the music, the disenchantment that occurs. It's what makes art monolithic. That's why when you go to a uh, gallery and you see like a bunch of paintings and they all look cool, they have their spirit inside of them. It's a, a flattening of human output. And I would much rather go to a hardcore punk show in a mosh pit or you know, a hip hop show on the subway, then go to like some boring gallery opening where everything looks exactly the same and people pretend to get some in joke, which it depends, depends if the gallery opening has an open bar, um, for me at least. Um, <laughs> I think that's fair. I, I think though, your like invocation of like the, the safe spaces concept does serve to highlight um how much has changed since you first published this book um which i'm now learning was you know it's coming up on a decade old um but uh, you know which uh, um in its like current form is still like uh four and a half years old and just how much has changed since then because uh um well for one thing i think that politics like feels less like an existential struggle against the enemy than it feels like an existential struggle against like entropy or like boredom and Mm. demoralization um Mm. the you know the like the left like are totally demoralized like progressives have like no like real energy or spirit like they're going through the motions of um canceling people but i just don't think there's any real enthusiasm for it um you know, the hard left is like completely buck broken and demoralized. Um, you know, the center left has basically everything that it wants. And yet there seems to be this like 
deep and abiding emptiness to it. Um, well, this goes back to the occult scene, having no true beliefs and having no true mm-hmm. foundation or metaphysical framework. It goes back to the emptiness, the glorification of nihilism. Mm-hmm. Right. I just think, uh, um, yeah, like the the enemy actually feels like weaker than ever. And yet that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, uh, the dissident community feels particularly stronger. It just seems like, you know, there's total void of power and a lack of um, any faction or person or um, group of interests that are worthy to kind of take the mantle. Um, another point, I think, is that the prophecy or like the kind of a uh, um, exhortation that you make um, to for the formation of like this insurgent, like elite big tent rightist counterculture has been more or less fulfilled. Um, and there have been probably about 6 million think pieces about it. Um, and <laughs> it's true. The prophecy has been fulfilled. My work is done here. And well, and yet from my point of view, um, it feels kind of, vacuous and like tedious like there is like a and hello bma hasn't been the same that's what i wrote the poem about so now now you're getting yeah 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 meaning yeah yeah and uh it's like this relates maybe this is why i liked the fiume poem and why i wanted to highlight it is because this relates to something that i've been feeling um with increasing frequency um you know, if you had told me about the cultural milieu that I occupy now, like four or five years ago, I would have thought it sounded like um, pretty much perfect. You know, it would have been like a dream. And yet I have this deep and abiding sense that the age of pioneers is over and I'm just condemned to watch everyone audition for their 15 minutes of clout and it's there's like a void of real passion or substance at the heart of it and everyone wants to angle for some kind of notoriety but there's no real there there um and you know i mean i it's not uniformly like that there are people who i admire who i think are doing interesting things and yet i just feel like everything has a really long tail and there's nothing to the tale. It really has no purpose. It's, it really brings nothing new. And yet it may, might constitute like the greater part of like the length of this, you know, phenomenon. Um, I mean, I would actually. Success is deadly to it. Um, Sorry. Even harsher than you about this. Um, So. So like okay, we had a dream that can now they're acting the same way as the left, just saying what they need to do to fit in and move up. So now we've got people who have come over, you know, they've adapted to this new counter elite thing that we've created as artists, and now they're just acting the same way as the leftists. Um, and so again, not an exclusive pattern of our era. This is just human behavior. 
it's something that we need to accept. You know, after a certain point in time, after any type of group of people, you know, gets a certain level of popularity, you're going to have these cultural dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, you need better gatekeeping. I mean, I, I don't want to like send like some purist old fag, though I know that I do right now. Um, um, and it's funny because people, they used to see me the way I see all these new people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I- um, oh, you know, it, everything yeah. is going to keep, you know, I mean, we're, we're not even at the point where we have like this anti-woke Hollywood where celebrities are like emulating all these, you know, clout celebrities, you know, uh-huh. um, just wait until the, the scene celebrities are emulated by, you know, like famous Hollywood celebrities where we're not even close to that yet, but we, we will be in five years. Um, we're going to have like a really good period of anti-woke Hollywood, you know, like five, four years, and then it's all going to get Ginger fight and sanitize. It's going to become like Pixar. You're going to oh, be watching. Wait, your you know, uh, I, oh wait, I'm so sorry. I, I'm so sorry. sorry. I'm, I'm, like, no, no, I, I have to cut <laughs> this podcast short actually because I, um, you know, this has been the beautiful toilet. Um, I'm going to go ride the elevator up to the tenth floor and then jump off of the building. Um, as I, <laughs> as I contemplate what you've just told me. Um, <laughs> Yeah, sorry to to be the bearer of bad news. I know that goes against the forty eight laws of power. Um, Sometimes, I mean, there's still no, there's still art. Like, there's still things that I'm excited (laughs) about. I um, I just watched the Barbie movie on the plane, which I really liked. Um, In some ways, I think it took a lot of cues from the kind of like transgressive rightist counterculture. Um, (laughs) But uh, um, intentionally. Who knows? Probably. I think uh, Greta Gerwig's a smart woman. Um, but uh, uh, I, I, I guess I understand that this is like to be expected, right? That there's always going to be like this kind of displacement of the pioneers with their, you know, with the carpetbaggers or whatever. But uh, it all feels like it's been for so little actual output like so little genuinely transgressive art there's been so many memes and posts there's been so much discourse about the timeline you know there's been so many e-girls and you know there there's like this yawning void of actual output that is not totally ephemeral that has like some kind of staying power at the heart of it and it's just like if we're already at the tail right now if we're already past the age of pioneers and this is what we've gotten for it like where did we go wrong like you know uh if you make free state like i mean we had a um you know, in Italy, they had like Marinetti and they had D'Annunzio and like, you know, both were great writers in their own right. Like there was actual culture to um, to go along with it. Um, you know, they they were patrons of Ezra Pound. And yet, who's the Marinetti of, of the art right? Who's the D'Annunzio of the art I right? I want to know dox myself or like wait what's um, that 
I don't, I don't want to like dox myself or like go over brand news. Oh, yeah, wait, you mean to tell you mean to tell me that uh, Haywire isn't your actual? Look, okay, like what? Okay, no, no, I, I mean, I, I actually was trying to like do that for a while. Um, <laughs> so you know, um, don't reveal your power level, whatever. Um, but but I also think that there are corners of genuine freedom of expression, of genuine transgressive art, where people are doing beautiful, pure things that are going to be long lasting. Um, and I don't think that anybody can ever take that away, no matter how popular anything gets. So let, let me white pill you so you don't jump what off. Do you, of well, what do you think are examples? Like, I'm curious, like, who do you think is, like, making, like, really, like, long lasting art? Um, I mean, I'm impressed by what Lynn is doing now with her fashion. Okay. I love how she's mixing high fashion and avant-garde rock, DIY. I just, I, I love her post-apocalyptic aesthetic. I love how she's kind of doing a homage to Alexander McQueen with mm -hmm. what she does with her models and how she engages them in performance art. Um, I, I love Joan Pope, the visual artist, um, Skinless Frank. He's an incredible artist who you can find all over the internet. And he has t-shirts. I just bought one the other day. Um, there are a lot of great writers now mm -hmm. um i think that maybe some of them are just not going to be as popular as others um but i've certainly read some incredible work um i post a lot of it in my own Substack. um i book my own events i throw my own salons and i have people read poetry um richard Cabu. um he just wrote this incredible book and he read from it a month ago at one of my events, um, Richard Leviathan, um, he's the author of a book called Odes. He writes different odes to different historical figures. He's also a neo-folk musician in a band called Ostara, and they're going to be playing a goth industrial music festival mm -hmm. in Leipzig. Mm -hmm. um, these bands are still around, these authors are still around, the artists are still around, we've got the fashion designers that are around all, all of it is happening now all of it is real all of it is organic all of it is vital and nobody is gonna take that away um mm -hmm. the idea of the scene is the Ugh. issue when something becomes popular and a bunch of hangarons come in and a bunch of groupies chasing clout try to make it all about them, that's when it degrades. Um, but that doesn't mean that the original D'Annunzios are suddenly like not there. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that Marionetti is like, okay, out of the building. It just means that mm -hmm. now well, I mean, there's like a bigger, um, you know, like circus in, in front of the, you, you know what I mean? Well, in a sense, like uh, um, D'Annunzio wasn't there after his uh after the PMA free state like he was you know he lived on for like another couple decades but uh um you know he was so effectively marginalized and he he seemed so blackpilled by the whole experience that he spent his remaining decades basically just kind of um you know as a slave to his own vices um with very little artistic output um and yet people still know who he is of course, people well, still know that CMA. on the, on the strength people of like what he know, did, yeah, on the strength of what he did before, you know, falling off, I suppose. Well, um, that, that's what I mean, though, is that his work it stood the test of time, even though his personal life took a downward 
Assange, his work itself, his great work remained. And you could say that uh, at a lot of these artists, like Ezra Pound, everybody knows who Ezra Pound is. He didn't mm -hmm. suddenly disappear because, you know, he was co-opted by whoever. Well, no, he um, actually probably did I, some of his most acclaimed work, uh, you know, after the war. So there's something to be said for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, like, I, I agree with you, you know, that's why I wrote like VMA hasn't been the same because we're always going to have this changing temporal space where organic ideas, they get polluted, you know, by these new cloud chasers. Um, you know, and that's just what we're calling them this era. We're calling them cloud chasers. I'm, I'm mm. sure they, they had another name a hundred years ago. Um, but I, I don't think that you can like discount the great works just because cloud chasers come in. You know, great work is great work. No, I don't and mean it to. It will always be great work. No, I don't intend to. I, I just feel like maybe relative to the past, like there's not as much great work to come out of it. But you, you know, you're uh, you're giving me hope a little bit. I guess the the news can wait another day. Um, I remember there was actually a. Um, I, I think the problem is that a lot of people are. Oh, please continue. Actually. They're, they're insanely blackpilled in these internet subcultures because they weren't around during the alternative countercultures. Um, so, look, like I'm someone who's been around for a while. I've seen some incredible concerts that blew my mind that were more transgressive than anything that I've seen on the internet or any of these like internet parties. You know, I mean, like I, I saw bands like Lybach and Death in June and Current 93. I saw Current 93 perform with an orchestra in Berlin. Um, mm -hmm. But before any of the political stuff happens online, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'll, I'll never forget these shows. I'll yeah. never forget these concerts. Yeah, for sure. Um, People online, you know, that are just like worshipping internet cloud, they, they weren't around for like this organic counterculture. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I think I, I'm just like spurting out and ranting. No, not at all. No, I mean that's what I want. You know? No, that's exactly what I want. I uh, um, hmm. so I think uh, um, your the the first half of the book in particular feels like very grounded in the time that it was written. Um, and I think it serves to highlight how far we've come and how much of what you prophecy in the book has uh, come to pass. Whereas like the second half feels much more general and like uh, um, much more like uh, uh, much less of a particular time. Um, you know, you've uh, you're, you've been associated with the transhumanist um, political party. Um, you know, I gather that you identify as a transhumanist and those themes kind of come through in the new art, right as well. Um, but I was kind of vague, or I, I I thought that the book was kind of vague on what exactly the um, present problem with humanity is. Um, in effect, it seems that the problem is that they're like too conformists. But but I I think that this criterion that separates what you consider like the one percent. Um, from 
from like a kind of like conformist herd mentality people that that criterion is somewhat vaguely defined um what do you think that properly constitutes well i actually don't consider myself a transhumanist anymore i consider myself a futurist because mm -hmm. the transhumanist movement is now focused exclusively on life extension they've just become another facet right. of the medical industry all they care mm -hmm. about is immortality when I got into transhumanism, I was thinking more of the Nietzschean concept of the Ubermensch and right, the right. ability to transcend our human state through a higher level of consciousness, which involved right. the creation of great works of art. Um, so I was referring to I was referring to transhumanism as like a higher humanity in which self-expression was the ultimate act of rebellion. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it, it was a, a different time. Right. Um, but no, I think, that, I think that I think that sense of the term like shines through in the text as well. Um, sorry, please continue. But can you ask me the question about humanity again? Well, what exactly is it like? Because you say that you like fundamentally have to like uh, reshape human nature to kind of um, emancipate it from this like herd mentality. Um, it seems in effect mm -hmm. that the problem is that people are too conformist, but I think that this criterion between like the elite and the untermension is, is seems like somewhat vaguely defined. Like what precisely is the um, change which has to occur that will separate the wheat from the chaff? Well, there are a lot of angles here and I definitely, I don't want to claim to be, you know, like some elite just, because I think that my art is so cool or whatever. Um, I, I think it's just a matter of thinking for yourself and being able to stand alone in the face of adversity, hmm. not feeling the need to change your opinion because you're afraid that you're going to get canceled, saying what's actually on your mind because you believe it. It's a matter of being able to stand alone in the face of adversity and not cower and pretend to be a part of the herd mm -hmm. so you can feel comfortable. I think that people who are a part of the herd, they seek comfort above all things. Um, mm -hmm. I think people that are more, um, let's just use the word elite just for the purpose of this conversation, but understand that that's not a specific thing that we're going for here, right? Um, people who are, let, let's go with aristocratic instead. Um, people who are more aristocratic, they aren't worried about the approval of the herd. And mm. they're willing to take more risks. They're willing to lead. They're willing to do and say things that are unpopular, not because they want to be cool, not because they want to be edgy, but because it's what they're actually about. And they don't need the approval of the masses to do these things. Hmm. I mean, I don't really believe that anyone thinks for themselves. Um like, I think that the That's kind a of pretty blanket statement. I think that everyone is much more impressionable than they like to admit. Like, I think it's part of human nature. Um, like, I think that the like the kind of like transgressive intellectual minority has a lot more in common with normies um, than like the kind of like normie herd or whatever than the former likes to admit. Um. Mm. because like no one like Just no, no one alters or like you know no one alters or like forms their worldview in like a vacuum of influence right and so like you know you and i might both like consider ourselves like part of like this you know my ex like 
small minority of people who like try to think critically about philosophical and political issues or whatever right um um and like form like kind of like original like transgressive and like you know sincere opinions like with an orientation towards the truth about this um but we're still invariably going to be reflecting our influences and like kind of filtering them through our personality our force of will and experiences but we're still i think like fundamentally impressionable and in a, in a lot of ways and maybe have less um kind of intellectual agency than we tend to ascribe to ourselves um i don't agree with that okay um, we're um, the evolian side of things i believe that we have different spiritual makeup Mm -hmm. And that some people are just more naturally inclined toward independent thought because they can withstand the fire. I think that there's a difference between having influences and letting them play a part in the creation of your art mm -hmm. and just going along with whatever the flow is. I think that people who swim against the current have a different psychic disposition. Um, sorry. Um, well, it is kind of a disposition in this era, um, <laughs> but uh, a different psychic makeup. Um, I, I think that's real. I think it's metaphysical. I think well, it's valid. Like, I think... Okay, like, you know, Dun Scotus is a philosopher that I like, to just, like, take, like, a random example, right? Like, I like Dun Scotus. I think his metaphysics are pretty much, like, the best that there is. Um, but... And so... Like if I encounter something in Duns Scotus that seems like uh, disagreeable to me, I might like have the humility to at least like step back and say, okay, like you know, I'm not like a slave to Duns Scotus, right? Like I don't like let him like dictate my worldview to me, but I'll also be like, well, that's interesting. He's right about a lot of other things. Like why would it? Why would he believe this about this other thing? And then I think that might like orient me towards. Um, towards like a kind of like receptivity to whatever he's saying and that if you aggregate like that receptiveness that it it, it kind of forms a kind yeah. of trend to um and and also like a big part of this is just uh um the pressure of creating a cohesive comprehensive and like fully explanatory worldview and so in a lot of ways, like beliefs do come in packages because just because of the constraints of internal yeah. consistency and like uh, uh, worldview cohesion. Um, That's fair. And I so, think that you might want to say that the schizo who's alone in the room that has never read anything is probably the most original because hmm. all they have is their own thoughts and they don't have any of these external influences. They've just That's got their journal. True. That is true. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think who would be like a, a true example of that that I can well I can think of one. But <laughs> well, yeah, you've got people in the the suburb. Oh my god, I know who you're talking about. Okay, um, so people <laughs> in the the suburbs, right, who aren't exposed to any of the art or the music or the literature, they haven't consumed any of the digital media or the mm -hmm. physical media. Um, all they know is like the mainstream, you know, Facebook. You know, that, that's all I know is like the memes that they see on Facebook. Um, if, if even that, they're very sheltered. They don't know about any of this 
turns the, the counterculture stuff on, but they're also like deeply lonely, deeply alienated. Um, they feel like they're the only one who thinks what they think and knows what they know, and they don't know anybody who they can relate to, not even on the internet. I think these people are writing incredible things because of their intense alienation hmm. and their lack of like-minded influences. And the, the thing is that because they're so isolated, we might never get to read their writing. I um, mean, that, that's the paradox of it all. These hmm. might be some of the most brilliant thing of, thinkers of our era. Um, but because they are so isolated, how are we ever going to discover them? Um, it, it, I, I think this is really significant. You know, you, you go into those small towns and you've got like true incels, you know, true loners. Mm -hmm. what, what are they branding I mean, I think true incels like exists uh, everywhere, but, um, but uh, um, as far as but, like, you know what I mean, like, there's a difference between. Being... I mean, as far as schizos, I think you know, you know I, it I can be. I used to think that there was a lot of like creative energy and like a lot that I wanted to study and emulate in like the kind of like insane ramblings of crackheads and whatnot, and there is like this kind of. <laughs> aspect of novelty that it brings into the picture i think that can be like trivially um exciting or give you like a different perspective but like it's never it, it never actually it's never sustainably interesting i think i think that a crackhead can be fun to listen to for maybe five minutes um but you wouldn't want to listen to a crackhead give a lecture because like what you find is that a disordered mind you think it's going to be like so unpredictable and interesting and off the wall and you never know where it's going to go next but experience has taught me that these people actually just get stuck in these like very boring kind of thought loops where everything and it becomes very repetitive after a certain point and actually like 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 clarity and precision in your thought and like um dynamism and like just like good like kind of like epistemological health will make you a lot more subversive and interesting and dynamic like uh, um on a lot like on any sufficiently long large scale of course and i think that having a healthy physical and mental life is crucial to having any kind of creative output mm -hmm. yet what you were saying before about how if you have all of these influences mm -hmm. that you're not truly a free agent um it kind of creates the paradox you know because if you're doing really well because you're of sound mind and of sound body then you're gonna have exposure to influences mm. that might shape your worldview so mm. i mean the, the question for me is can you be a truly original thinker if you have all these influences and i would say yes you, you can because that is your metaphysical makeup hmm. you might say no you, you can because you've got all these influences okay so is the crackhead the revenge that that doesn't make sense either i mean i just don't i don't even like look at that i like i don't aspire to like ubermensch status at all i think that you know um yeah, a lot of just a term that right right invented yeah yeah and I, but like i i think that a lot of like great things are achieved through like self-awareness and like a humility and like a sense of one's own like epistemic handicaps and that 
like the beginning of wisdom is kind of realizing that you're not the agent that your brain causes you to believe that you are, you know, that like, mm. if I, if, you know, if my circumstances in life changed, um, tomorrow and, um, for the next five years, all of my friends were, let's say, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, right? Like, uh, uh, and that was just like the social community that I found myself in. Like, you know, I think that there would be a core of my ideas and there would be some sense where I would kind of like resist like the uh, uh, pull of that. But I think that I am self-aware enough to know that I would start to contextualize my thoughts in like uh uh in relation to trans exclusionary radical feminism or i would um mm. or i would you know start to think in the kind of rubrics that they assign me and even if i don't like convert even if i don't become one of them which i think is possible right like i wouldn't i probably wouldn't like convert to islam if i just like moved to <laughs> saudi arabia tomorrow and lived among muslims but like i would still be thinking in the terms that they equip me with and in some ways my thought would very naturally inclined to resemble their thought in one form or another or either that or it would be like purely like relative to their thought but in either way like i'm not really independent like i'm not quite the agent that my brain thinks that it is and i think maybe with like a, a certain degree of autism maybe you can resist this but i also just think it's like human nature to um you know to kind of have this like sponge-like absorbance of external externalities and um of like social kind of consensus um and you know i say this to someone who's like resisted social consensus a lot of times like as like you know a hardened like a uh, anti-mask warrior during the coronavirus and it was like you know deeply yeah. in like the heart of like in downtown manhattan no less you know um and that was really uh that really wore me down. Um, but like, I still think that if I, you know, if I'm trying to be humble about my own, um, or just like self-aware about like my own intellectual autobiography, I have to view myself as like part of communities that like, uh, uh form consensus and I'm always in dialogue with them in one form or another. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that some people are more naturally free thinking and perhaps like more reactionary and contrarian and some mm -hmm. people they just want to go along to get along and mm -hmm. you've got all sorts of variations. You've got the people who want to get along and go along that don't we think for themselves and the ones who do it, you know, like from a strategic standpoint because they have a wider goal. Um, some people they're just gonna automatically go against any community that they come across because that's their personality. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's really like hard to judge the individual character of anybody without getting to know them on a personal level. Um, we have all these masks and personas that we wear. Everybody's dressed in like five layers of opsec. We're so post muttered now that we don't even know each other. Um, and I think all of that is really significant. I. I think that the metaphysical makeup is important though, that there are some personalities that are less susceptible to going along with the herd. But mm -hmm. 
I would certainly not deny that we're products of influence. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I say this as like, I would probably identify as someone who's very, um, what's the word? Um, like contrarian and like kind of like resistant to uh consensus or whatever um i mean i think that what i'm telling you is kind of a product of that right of like the kind of hmm. um but like how would i say because you're right like i mean these are all somewhat relative things but like I would not have the worldview that I have today if I grew up in like India in the year 1300. Or yeah. yeah, if I, you know, if I came from like Sudan in the year like 1800, I don't know. Like I would not, I mean, I'm maybe I kind of believe that I would actually hold like, my core beliefs like about like uh, um epistemology and like meta ethics and like the principle of sufficient reason and like um god or whatever like i i kind of do believe that those views would be more or less the same since i think that i've kind of come to them by like this very autistic like kind of like detached like uh uh um scrutiny or whatever but you know but like i definitely in the particulars um my worldview would be radically like fundamentally different and opposed to my worldview coming from the environment that I, um, that I come from now. I don't think that anybody would be the same if they had a different environmental upbringing. I think that we're so reactive to our environments. I mean, yeah. you can just see the way that people's politics change depending on their geographical location yeah that's exactly um, what know, i'm saying like you're always gonna be a product of your influences in your environment you're not just gonna be like alone in your mind um the people mm. who are the most alone in their minds are the ones who live you know in small towns and suburban enclaves they're maybe they have like five friends on discord that they talk to mm -hmm. you know um and i do think that they are going to produce more original content Mm -hmm. And people who were, you know, um, hanging out with the clouded, you know, mm -hmm. um, I, I really, I, I would say just like judge the individual. This is something mm -hmm. that I'm big on and I, I get called the libtard for it, but judge the individual. Mm -hmm. Don't judge the statistics. Don't judge the norms. Don't judge the mediums or the means or the averages. Judge the individual output. Is this mm -hmm. a good song? Is this a good book? Is this a good film? Look at that and look at the person for who they are, not mm -hmm. for their persona or for their lore. Um, I know that's a, a word that people are using now, lore. Um, just mm -hmm. take things for what they are. Take people for who they are. I mean, in some sense, I, I mean, think I, that I think the lore can be like an act of like artistic cultivation. You know, you know what I mean? Um, like Denunzio certainly yeah. cultivated his own lore and it was like a part of his art um sure very true um but uh, uh yeah so that's kind of a tangent but uh um no i mean that there's like self-mythologizing and then there's like spreading rumors about yourself because you want attention um 
creating lore for yourself in a self-mythologizing way as an act of art. Um, but I, I don't think that like making up gossip about yourself is artistic at all. I think it's boring. Yeah. Um, and I think we should distinguish between the two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, and this is something I've talked about uh, last month on the podcast, um, just my belief that gimmicks are actually kind of um, underappreciated right now, that like discourse is like this overwhelming force um, where, you know, the conversation and the drama and the discourse is like, so preeminent and yet no one's actually doing anything like memorable you know what i mean whereas like i think that gimmicks have the power to be like this thing where it's like okay you thought of something like original and like off the wall and you've like you know um and you really committed to it and you turned it into like genuine art like uh um i i've said this before on the pod but like i hold this ideal of like a male artist as like a kind of ken doll like figure um one who like puts on different costumes um i think that denunzio embodies this right because he can be like you know a horny poet he can be like a, a society man he can be like this aviator he can be like this militia leader who creates like a sovereign state for a few years um you know mishima embodies this there's like it, like just like different costumes that you can put on like different identities you can dip your toe into and i think that that can be like and like be, that really complements like this persona of being a man of action um this idea of like having gimmicks um but like that it, not yeah, gimmicks I, in the sense that they're like cheap or that they're insincere or that it's purely for the attention there's also like a level of commitment to it like mishima like you know dressed up as like a militia leader and it was like a larp what he did but then he committed to the bit and he like you know he carried out the LARP and he literally like disemboweled himself for it. And, you know, which I, you know, totally disavow. I think suicide is cringe, but uh, like, that's funny. I, I think it's bold for you to rehabilitate gimmick as a term. <laughs> I, I think that's a bold action in itself. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't use the word gimmick for what you're talking about. And, but yeah, the fluidity of identity is a beautiful thing, you know, and being able to go from, one personality to another shows extreme strength of character, well, um, it's especially all, when you're doing it for an overarching purpose. I would probably put I it like that, something yeah. somewhat differently where like you can like take on these different roles or whatever, but it's not about like taking on a different personality. It's actually about assimilating them all into the narrative of oneself. That, that's um, what I mean. It's the overarching purpose, the overarching self that you're creating through these different personas it's all a part of a grand work of identity yeah um, and but, it's like but that's not the same as like gossiping about yourself for attention on the internet but no that's that's, my, that's what i agree like, there's not enough action <laughs> yeah. it's like so much fucking discourse with it's like endless discourse yeah. about itself there's no actual subject to it right <laughs> and so like the gimmick yeah. as i call it or you could call it like the larp even or like you know uh, uh the spectacle yeah. right but like all of this like it actually serves to put something at the center of the discourse that isn't just itself I mean, it's not possible that we're just so far with the rainbow with postmodernism that authenticity is now just like a myth of the past and that when people are 
engaging in these LARPs, it's just like their sincere way of expressing themselves. It's like the only language they know. Hmm. I mean, I think I see authenticity all the time. I think that uh, I, I, I maybe I'm just naive, but I feel like everyone I interface with almost has been pretty sincere with me. So, but that, that's what I mean: is the LARPs themselves are they authentic in the era that we live in? Are these LARPing individuals being sincere? I think that my LARP, I think that of our decade, you know. I think that my LARPs are sincere. Um, I can't speak for anyone else, I guess. No, I think they usually are. I think that... I, I think they are in some cases. I think that, the, go- that like, the seeding of gossip or like the kind of uh, um, discoursing is not really... It does not have a proclivity towards sincerity, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, I think that when people just gossip about each other and make up rumors about themselves and they can get people to talk about them, I think that there's just something really decadent and really bad about this type of behavior. Um, but being able to self-mythologize in a way like D'Annunzio or Mishima is its own thing and we should definitely separate these things from each other, right? I also think that if somebody's being authentic, you can feel it. You can mm-hmm. feel the authenticity in the way they express themselves, you know? And if somebody's trying too hard, you're going to be able to pick up on that too. Um, I, I had a friend that came to a party at a certain location and he was worried that people were going to think he was too liberal. And I said, don't try to be based. It's better if you're yourself and cringe. You'll get more respect that way. The minute you try to be based, people are going to realize that you're full of it. Just be yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so sick of being based. I'm like... Just be yourself. Whatever that looks like. Whatever people think that is. Just be real. Mm -hmm. I mean, the bare minimum requirement is being real. At least like in my choice of social interactions. Right. I mean, maybe I'm just naive, but I I tend to think anyone who's nice to me comes across as sincere. I think most people actually are sincere. Um, and maybe this kind of brings a full circle to what we talked about in the beginning, that uh, maybe you think that I'm being more charitable to like the kind of cancel vultures than, than they deserve. But like, I think... Almost everyone believes what they're telling you as like the gospel truth in their heart. And maybe they've like followed a very kind of like motivated reasoning to get there. Maybe they're very like selfish in their kind of motivations. Um, But I think that the person interfacing with you is actually like usually being authentic to their thoughts in that moment. that I want to agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I've just dealt with more scummy people, you know, having worked in certain industries where people are very sociopathic. Um, I think your mileage may vary 
Mm-hmm. I also think that a lot of people like us, um, this is going to be a, a big moment of vulnerability here. Um, we're used to being rejected for mm-hmm. being honest and real. And I mean, I guess like autistic. Um, and that mm-hmm. because of that, when people are nice to us, we often feel flattered and it boosts our egos. And we might assume that they're sincere. Yeah, I'm they, glad. They might not be. I'm glad you brought that up, actually. That was one thing that I kind of, uh, um, I thought about putting on the docket, but I didn't, uh, um, I didn't end up including it because I didn't know how to tie it in. But, uh, um, uh, but there was something that resonated with me, which was, uh, a work of a short nonfiction that you published very, fairly recently. Um, what was the, what's it called? Gender drama at the Goth Club. This was uh, all of fifteen days ago. So, um, and uh, yeah, and, uh, it, you know, X dot com has already moved on. But, um, but I just uh, read this earlier today when I was preparing for this, and I, I definitely thought it was resonant for the reason that you highlight pretty much. Um, uh, can you give like a brief summary of? what you say in this article while I plug in my laptop that's on Death Store? Sure. Yeah, so I was at a golf club in the Bay Area with a girl who was very superstitious about energy and vibrations. And I was dancing too masculine for her because, you know, I'm really into industrial, you know, so industrial, it's hard dancing. It's pretty extreme you know it's very masculine the body movements are very masculine and (laughs) she was freaked out by the masculine energy um and she's a woman who has borderline personality disorder um like i guess all the goth girls do um bad person disorder but she she was also a ptsd therapist which made it even more crazy and more twisted it's it's like when when you've got some sort of borderline that's like all sorts of fucked up, um, it, but it's actually like really common in the goth scene, you know. Um, and it, it sucks, you know, because I'm all about the music, I'm all about the dancing, I'm all about the production of good material, you know. And I just love listening to the music and making the music. Um, but you you've got these people that are like really superstitious and like focused on like energy and vibration through like these new age, you know, like want to be goddess types um and they don't have any beliefs that are distinguishable from new age yuppies they're basically new age yuppies who dress up like goth people you know um it's like you, you can dress up however you want but if you're a new age yuppie that's gonna shine through um i i think that buddhism is like the new christianity this california neo-buddhism um which is very tied to like liberal politics um and I, I think that these people are on their way out. I think that I, I think that they're gonna go bye bye <laughs> in a few years. We won't need to deal with them anymore. Mm-hmm. I think they're going out of style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, um, well, you didn't really say what happened. Oh, about her ditching me at the club. Yeah, she ditched me because I was dancing in a masculine way and she was freaked out by my energy, which I thought was really funny because the people who police the most gender conformity are often the ones that 
claimed to be the most liberal, you know, like this girl is like a stereotypical leftist, but she was so freaked out by like my masculine energy that she actually ditched me at the club, um, which is insane because I'm usually the person who's throwing events, you know, like playing shows, DJing. Um, but yeah, like I, I've been ditched before. Um, <laughs> she reminded me of all the times that I'd been ditched. It, it was like kind of traumatic for me. Yeah, that I, was I'm what like, resonated okay, are, are with you, me. Like, like uh, me. yeah, that feeling of rejection. I think I've gotten that in other parts of your work as well. But, uh, um, you know, uh, what's the word? Oh, where Alienation. Yeah, well, no, I mean, I think rejection is actually like what I'm talking about, like uh, um, uh, very precisely. I begin remembering all of the times that I've ever been ditched. It's the getting ditched series of my life being played on repeat. There's a hashtag basic bitch trauma drama element involved. I recall an event from almost two decades ago where, the gr where a group of girls ditched me at some hipster shindig because I wasn't chill enough. And, uh, yeah, like that, uh, um, I don't know, like, I hate being alone more than anything in the world. And if someone walks away from me, it always feels like an existential crisis. So, um, I think sorry. it's important to, to feel it actually, you know, yeah. um, and to not gloss over your emotions when you've been ditched or rejected. Um, and I also, I think that being vulnerable and discussing your emotions should be like reserved for leftists. You know, I think, I think we're all emotional. We're all real people who feel a real pain. And mm -hmm. I think that we should be more open about it. Getting rejected hurts, getting ditched hurts. Um, especially when, you're somebody who is an organizer and a producer and an artist, you can still get ditched. You can still get rejected. Mm -hmm. You you can have a shitload of influence. You, you can have thousands of fans, but you're still susceptible to getting ditched because you might have some energy that rubs somebody the wrong way. Yeah. And then you're just another person who's been rejected and you have to confront that at the end of the day, no matter how much clout you have, no matter where you've been. You've been rejected and you need to sit with it. You need to understand it. You need to get where the other person is coming from and you need to feel that pain. You can't just gloss over it. It's unhealthy to just gloss over negative emotions and to not feel rejection. You have to really experience it. I, I don't like that there's the, this taboo on the right against emotional awareness. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like that. I think the right should be emotional. I don't think yeah. you're going to get a real art right without emotion. You, you can't have art without emotion. I remember uh, on my episode with Curtis, I asked him, uh, I asked him uh, why he was so keen on uh, crying on podcasts or like crying in public appearances in general. And he just told me point blank. He said, you know, when I was in my twenties, I realized women really like it. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, uh women are more sensitive. This this is true. But I actually I, think crying can be very powerful. Different. Like, you know, I think that a uh, Hunter Biden like gives off like that like dragon energy as he's like sobbing between taking drags from his crack <laughs> pipe. Like uh um but you know, I I think uh, um to get back to the point though that um just give me give me one second. I'm gonna 
take out my headsets because my my bluetooth just died um so wait it sounds so much it, it sounds so much better now than it did for like does it, like, does it really yeah no i'm just like uh, <laughs> just, just give me one sec yeah no worries can you still hear me oh wait no wait it sounds worse now can you hear me okay yeah yeah are you closer to the microphone can you hear me, can you hear me yeah. now okay you sound great now yeah damn Ish. okay <laughs> i'm like yeah so myself. i like that people cry on podcasts mm-hmm. yeah i just I, uh, um i think but, it's good but to get back to the point though i think uh um yeah i just i just wanted to highlight that because it resonated with me and you know here i am um about three or four days into my uh grand journey to argentina um you know i was supposed to be here with someone but was also you know rejected and yeah like rejected by another girl another there's fucking whores <laughs> you know it, well it's just like you know like cry, i said can you cry about it cry about it not on the pot not not on command no but uh um <laughs> You know, I mean, to, you know, and I mentioned that at the beginning as well, that uh, um, this is not how this is supposed to go. And I kind of, you know, I felt the need to make a statement. I'm just like, well, I'm going to fucking follow through on my word, like, even if you don't. And now I'm here alone and, it, you know, it eats away at me for sure. And it's like, you know, this is the fourth time it happened with this one person in particular. Um, and and uh, Really? So she's like, did you four times? That's, yeah, that's fucked up. You should maybe like not try to hang out with her anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'm working on it. She she should be um trying to get your attention. Did did she you four times is unforgivable. Like, why are you even trying to? Sorry, I'm not trying to be mean. Um, I'm not. I'm not really trying. <laughs> but, I'm not, but like, yeah. fa- fuck this. Can I say fuck this bitch? Like, I don't even know who she is. I. You can say it. I, I, I don't want to get some drama. No, no, no you like, can. You, you, you're, 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 but she sounds like a horrible person. Yeah, I have my own opinions about the matter, but I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to make it about that. You know, my point in bringing it up is just that. I mean, this has also felt like a pattern my whole life. Like, you know, if I, you know, get attached to someone or whatever, then, you know, she kind of walks away and or like starts to like drift away or whatever, and um. You know, I dread solitude more than pretty much anything in the world. And yet here I am. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I'm not trying to, like, uh, uh, harp about my issues. And I'm definitely not trying to uh, excoriate, you know, my ex-girlfriend for what she did. I have. Oh, my- it's your ex-girlfriend. Okay, that that's different. I, I thought yeah. that maybe this was, like, some girl that had kept, like, Charlie Brown... Oh kind of no, no, okay. no no that's well, what i was kind of is like that it kind of is like the the ex-girlfriend of charlie brown football yeah no but uh um huh. i don't know but uh i think um, it's okay to be alone even if you're not okay with feeling alone oh, because I, I dread it i'm like i, I feel like uh, I've, had enough. I've had enough of it i'm like but when you're feeling like, alone and you're not okay with feeling alone then you can realize why you're not okay with feeling alone you can understand what makes you uncomfortable about it huh. and then you learn more about yourself as a result 
I mean, I feel like I've had plenty of opportunities to do that, but I mean, you're, you're talking to like a high level extrovert who is so me too. social. I'm like the most extroverted person I know, like very antisocial at the same huh. time. I'm like an antisocial socialite. No, we're probably I'm very similar like in that way. Social like, antisocial people. <laughs> I, I get the sense that we're very similar right. in that way, like uh, uh, like desiring approval or just like desiring like inclusion or whatever. But like also like being very stubborn and like I mean, I, I don't desire kinda... inclusion because I know I'll never have it. Really, I just desire the freedom to be myself hmm. and not get excluded for that. I know I'm never going to be a part of any group that I don't start. So that's why oh, yeah, I, I agree. start. I've always been like... That's why I throw my own events. That's even why I start my own companies and production outfits. It's because yeah, I know always, I'm not going to get accepted into a pre-existing group. Like resistant to kind of assimilating to any group or trying to assimilate to any group in particular. I, I think I do. And I try to like be at the center, like, you know, the spoke and the wheel or whatever um in my social life i think that you know i it's the union of egoists yeah. <laughs> this is like max sterner union of egoists mm -hmm. you've got a bunch of people that don't get along with anybody and mm -hmm. they all form a union but it, i definitely it's sort of like that you've got anti-social people do desire to each other i definitely do <laughs> desire to be accepted but and like sought out and liked by people um and like you know Really but you are well. actually oh well the the thing is that you are and i am and a lot of people like us are mm -hmm. and we often will dwell on the rejection when meanwhile hundreds of people do love and accept us because yeah. rejection hurts right so we'll forget about all the people who are nice and kind and loving and thinking about the one time that the football was kicked underneath us and that that's common. Definitely more than certain one, personality yeah. types. No, but I mean, the, the one time it'll mm -hmm. remind us of all the other times, you know, like I was ditched. Then I thought of all the other times I was ditched. Um, but yeah. what about all the times that I was on the guest list? What about all the times I was invited to perform? What about all the times that I was DJing? What about all the times that people came up to me and told me they loved my work? Why am I thinking about the time I was ditched? You're right. You, know, you include um, that in the piece as well, but you know the yeah so it's it's like you you think about that, the bad stuff because you're sensitive to rejection and you forget about all the people who love and accept you it's yeah, a that, distorted way of thinking yeah that part uh, um really resonated with me when you just the instant just provokes this entire autobiography of rejection but actually yeah you're right like you know you elaborate on this later in the piece that you know people actually know you and know who you are and like there's actually a lot of people that are really excited to talk to you but uh but it never really you know never makes it it never makes the fear go away i suppose i think that the best way to deal with rejection is just to accept it and not let it cloud your vision of all the times that you've been accepted. But mm. that could be hard to do if you were bullied when you were younger, if you felt this sense of alienation, if you felt like you were the only person in the world who knew what it was like to, you know, like the whole like Zarathustra thing, or 
you know, like Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield. These are archetypes for a reason, you know, like these are common experiences. We're not the only ones who have gone through this. I mean, there's like thousands of people, you know, who, who know what this is like. Um, and I, I think that it definitely, it, it is um, a certain type of metaphysical makeup that makes people like this. Um, it, it is a certain type of, I guess, um, metaphysical um, skin in mm-hmm. a way. Um, that there are certain, I guess, currents of humans. And I would just accept it. You know, just this is who I am. Some people are going to love me. Some people are going to hate me. But I'm going to make my art. I'm going to write. I'm going to do my podcast. I'm going to be me. And if you do that, you're going to end up feeling good. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, if you're true to yourself and you do what makes you feel good on your own terms, then you're going to feel good about yourself. And once you're there, I mean, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. And, and even if you haven't gotten there, just knowing that it's possible to get there, you know, and knowing that it's a work in progress, I think that that's all you need. Thank you. 
银壶，却偏是昨夜温柔旧梦。